are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We have a fantastic episode tonight. We have got Catherine Van Tassel, PAC and LCSW joining us, and we are talking all about food and food addiction. Paula is going to introduce our guest. Well, it is my honor and joy to introduce Catherine. She's one of my dearest friends, so so lucky to have her on the show. She graduated from the University of Utah with a Master of Social Work in 2004. And during her time as a medical social worker working with end-stage renal patients, she was touched by each patient's story of how their chronic health condition changed everyday life. This led her towards the medical profession, specifically the emergent need for preventative health care. And as a result, she decided to further her education and graduated from the University of Utah Physician Assistant Program in 2016. She furthered her training by receiving a certificate in integrative medicine, from the University of Arizona and board certified in lifestyle medicine from the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Additional training includes plant-based nutrition certification from Cornell, certificate in evidence-based optimal nutrition from Harvard School of Public Health, and precision nutrition level one coach. And to further her reach in helping people become their healthiest self, she started Plant Plus Remedy, which is a company providing individual nutrition and corporate health. And I would just add that Catherine is just a general badass. I could say lots and lots of amazing things about her. She's a wonderful, lovely person, and she's incredibly talented at what she does. She has a long history of amazing endurance athlete events to her name, including ultramarathons, Ironman, low to jar races, which are 206 mile one day road cycling races and more. But I think just to put a plug in, when I met Catherine, I was just amazed by her enthusiasm for the field of nutrition and health. And she spreads it wherever she goes. She's just kind of a joy spreader. And people just attract, come to her to, to gain information and knowledge. So we're really lucky to have you. And we're so grateful. Yeah, I am thrilled, Catherine, to have you on today. Tell us what got you in, gents, but where does this passion come from? Well, thank you so much for having me here. And thank you for all those kind words, Paula. I'm really excited to talk about this. In fact, I'll probably have to like be brought back down to earth because I get a little bit too excited about this subject. But really, I mean, my passion started probably 20 years ago. I've always been really interested in like exercise and eating well. But I think like most people, I didn't really know what that was. And I think about, geez, even when I was 14 years old, starting my first quote unquote diet, you know, that my mom was on, it was slim fast and the cabbage soup diet and not having any understanding of how food affects our body, both mentally and physically, you know, back then it was just all about aesthetics. What did that look like? And, and then later when I was working in the medical field, I got really sad because so many of the people that I was working with had chronic diseases that were caused by food. I think it's pretty remarkable now that what we eat has now is now our number one cause of death in the United States. So for the first time, smoking is not our number one preventable cause of death. It's food. And I saw this in dialysis when I was working there and asked one of the nephrologists one day, how many of your patients do you think wouldn't be here if they would have had proper nutrition and movement? And he said probably 75% of those people wouldn't be there. For people that aren't familiar with dialysis, 
this, it's when your kidneys essentially fail and you have to go into a center three times a week for at least four hours and your blood gets cleaned through a machine. You know, most people can't work anymore. Their relationships are severely impacted. Their lives completely change and they don't feel well. And so I just thought we're really failing as a medical system and in society that we just don't have a good level of food education so much that people's lives are being dramatically affected. This isn't just about the appearance anymore. I mean, this is our daily functioning. It's so interesting that you could see that so apparently, and it led you down this path for kind of towards more prevention, right? And I think the other thing that was like so incredible is that people were on dialysis, but still their chairs would be full of like Coke and candy and treats to get them through. I mean, they'd gotten to that part and there still there still wasn't a reckoning at that point. And, and I would like to say, and I think we will talk about this, is I don't blame individuals for this. I really blame our system. I mean, and we'll get into all the factors that, you know, why it comes to this. Yeah. So, so this kind of problem of the number one leading cause of death now being lifestyle and nutrition as being this bigger systems problem. We have the end of the extreme where people have significant, you know, physical health problems. There's also mental health problems that come from toxic food or overeating or food addiction. And then there's maybe food addiction in and of itself, Mm -hmm. you know, where people actually have out of control eating, eating with negative consequences. So I'm really interested to hear all the things you have to say, but can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, I don't know where you want to start. If you want to start with the industry and what it is and how it's led us to this point or where we are with people having food addiction. What do you, where do you want to go? Yeah. I mean, maybe we can just talk about what is food addiction and what does that look like? Food addiction is not in the DSM right now. It's not recognized by the American Psychiatric Association or the World Health Organization. However, there is more and more research that's coming out and more people are recognizing that it's an issue. So we can talk a little bit about how you can review symptoms with patients. But essentially, I just wanted to say, you know, food addiction is a recently cornered behavior pathology and the specific diagnostic criteria, measurement methods, prognostic factors, and therapeutic interventions are still in the early phase. However, the term food addiction was first introduced in the scientific literature in 1956 by Theron Randolph. So this is most certainly not new. This has been around for quite some time, but we're still just trying to get our hands on it. And I think that what's interesting is that food addiction really crosses a number of mental health diagnoses. So for example, you'll see clinical components of food addiction and eating disorder. So you see the lack of control over eating behavior. Most certainly, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, is substance use disorder. So the craving or the continued use despite awareness of the negative consequences. We only have to go to Thanksgiving once a year to experience that, right? And then you see this too in impulsivity, um, impulsive personality traits, kind of high-risk behaviors, and just this addictive consumption of substances, which in this and what we're talking about would be food. And then also an obsessive compulsive disorder. So intrusive thoughts, always thinking about that, especially if somebody goes on quote unquote a diet where you can't have this or these foods you can't have. Inevitably, what typically happens is you blow through that and then you eat all of those and you go into this shame cycle. We see that in substance use disorder, right? And then we know that addiction also 
there's a lot of comorbidities with that too. So whether that's health problems, a lot of mood disorders, so depressed mood, low self-esteem, major depressive disorder, binge eating disorder, and then the physical manifestations that you see. So becoming overweight or obese, developing metabolic imbalances due to um, ongoing food consumption, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. And then you get into social stigmatization of weight or the addictive-like behavior. So, you know, even though it's not recognized by the American Psychiatric Association or the World Health Health Organization, more people are becoming aware of the negative consequences of their addictions and they are looking for help. I think it's really important for providers to be able to recognize this because it does have all of these consequences. I mean, even if we were just looking at metabolic syndrome and mental health, I mean, those two things alone we see every day and is really impactful on our patients. With this interest in the scientific area, it's kind of interesting to see what they're doing. I mean, they're doing neuroimaging to see what happens in the brain, the posterior sing- cingulate that lights up when they're shown food that they really like. We see alterations in the dopaminergic signaling and food cue hyperactive hyperactivation of the related brain system areas, which are sa- same that we see in drug users. One of the things that we're um, using in the clinical world is called the YFA. AS scale. This is the Yale Food Addiction Severity Scale. And essentially, this has been validated. What they based this instrument off of is really addiction. What was our definition in the DSM, how they built this. So it has a high prevalence of food addiction that was found in the general population. So essentially, it's 25 questions. We We don't need to go through all 25 questions, but it asks in the past 12 months, and then your answer can be never once a month, two to four times a month, two to three times a week, or four or more times daily. But some of the questions that you'll see in this questionnaire, eating habits related to foods like sweets, ice cream, chocolate, donuts, cookies, cakes, candy, ice cream, starches, white bread, rolls, pasta, and rice, salty snacks like chips, pretzels, and crackers, fatty food like steak, bacon, hamburgers, cheeseburgers, pizza, fries, and then soda pop. So it doesn't, it's not asking questions about carrots and kale and beans. And does it include boba tea? That is my <laughs> question. So it asks you how many times in the last 12 months you've thought about those foods or you've consumed those foods. So considering those foods in mind, these that's what the 25 questions are. Oh, okay. Got it. And so a few examples are, I find that when I start eating certain foods, I end up eating much more than I planned. Kind of this phenomenon when you can be sitting on the couch eating food and then all of a sudden it's all gone, like the whole Ben and Jerry's container is gone or the chip bag. And you're like, wait, where did, did somebody else eat this? Because I surely didn't eat that all. I eat to the point where I feel physically ill. Not eating certain types of food or cutting down on certain certain types of food is something I worry about. I spend a lot of time feeling sluggish or fatigued from overeating. I find myself constantly eating certain foods throughout the day. I find that when certain foods are not available, I will go out of my way to obtain them. For example, I will drive to the store, purchase certain foods, even though I have other options available to me at home. So kind of that preoccupation once you get this craving, like you're going to do it no matter what. There have been times when I've consumed certain foods 
so often or in such large quantities that I spent time dealing with negative feelings from overeating instead of working, spending time with my family or friends or engaging in important activities. And I think that that's really impactful, right? Because in mental health, what we see is if the behavior is causing distress in your life. I mean, this is most certainly in that area. Like I'm engaging in this behavior. In the end, it's taking me out of the things that really bring me pleasure and joy. And then maybe just a couple other ones. I have found that I have elevated desire for or urges to consume certain foods when I cut them down or stop eating them. My behavior with respect to food and eating causes significant distress. And then it also asks, I've tried to cut down or stop eating certain kinds of foods. I want to cut down or stop certain. So I want, and I've tried, those are two different questions, but essentially the desire to do something. So that's kind of a good overview of what this scale looks like. Okay. I have so many things to say about this and ask. Like, first of all, you're so right. This just sounds exactly like the DSM Mm five, you know, overdoing it to the extent that you're neglecting other things, preoccupation, kind of cravings, compulsive use. So that's really fascinating. I mean, it makes such a clear analogy and it makes sense after you describe the same areas of the brain that light up when people are thinking about or having these really salient foods. So that's really fascinating. What I wanted to ask is why, how is this different to like the eating disorder DSM-5 diagnosis of bulimia nervosa, binge eating, anorexia nervosa? You know, how do you use this for patients versus trying to screen them or diagnose them for, for an eating disorder? Most certainly different diagnostic criteria and you would see a different behavior, right? So for, let's say, anorexia, people not eating food at all or being away from food to the point where they're losing a lot of weight, a lot of anxiety around food. So you see some of that cross except for food addiction, it's mostly consuming, consuming despite the negative consequences. And then versus like binging where binging and purging where they then either use laxatives or vomit. You don't see that so much in food addiction because then that would be bulimia. So different behaviors, but there most certainly is a lot of similarities. But again, that's why it's good to know this because you might think somebody is bulimic when really it's a food addiction and they're not participating in those other behaviors that would be diagnostic of that diagnosis. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. And so do people in your experience, like especially since you worked for a long time in mental health, and you still do, do people come forward with these complaints? Or is it something that we that we should kind of be screening for? Like when we see someone who has a physical manifestation of it? I mean, I'm just trying to think and Darlene, what do you think too? Do you see people where you suspect they have food addiction? Or are people coming in saying I just can't stop eating this one food? But I mean, what's how do people present with this. So like for our learners, how do we detect food addiction so we know how to? I mean, so I think that really gets to the crux of this. And this is what the challenge is. Unlike alcohol or any other drugs of abuse, they're either illegal or people just don't use them, right? Like you cannot drink alcohol and you can live. Where food, that's built into our society and a lot of maladaptive behaviors are normal in our society. Honestly, most people look at me because I eat a predominantly plant-based diet. I usually always take my food with me because I know most places I won't be able to eat there. I can't have wheat because I have celiac disease. So that kind of takes it up a notch. I am on an extreme end in terms of 
societal norms. Perfect example, my first day at a new job, I go there and they want to buy lunch for me. Oh, well, I don't eat meat and I don't eat dairy and I don't eat wheat. Pretty much most of the foods that that we consume on a daily basis is taken out. And people, I mean, we just don't eat like that as a society. Everything revolves around food. So holidays revolve around food, any family gathering, you get together with your friends, work, school. It's a Wednesday. It's a Tuesday. It's March Madness. It's Christmas. I mean, it is everywhere. A a bad day you eat, a good day you eat. You did something good, you get a reward. Something bad happened. Well, let's feed that with food. Somebody gets sick. Well, let's give you food. When you're saying like, how do you screen people in clinic? I mean, that is a really hard thing because sometimes we don't even know if this is just behavior that's happened because this is the society we live in, which again comes back to what we were talking about in the beginning is that this is why food is our number one killer. And I would say probably most people have some sort of food addiction that's not really a fault of their own. It's because of the processed food industry, which, you know, we'll talk about that. So I think probably, you know, in an ideal world, this would be built into to any questionnaire when you got a new patient to ask them what their relationship with it is with food. And that could be an open-ended question. You know, tell me, do you have a good relationship with food? Do you think food has impacted you um, physically or mentally in a negative way? way. And then maybe that could trigger that again, because this is something that's new and is not, you know, really recognized kind of get to be inventive in how you're going to screen for this and and treat your pay well, at least screen for it in your clinic, but very innovative and also very impactful. I love it. That is such a great just open-ended question just to start with. Yeah, switching gears, Catherine, let's talk about the food industry. How do our patients get here? A couple months back, we we had a guest on our show, Wendy Francis, that talked to us about emotional overeating. And she mentioned a study that talked about, it, this is a rat study, but it talked about high fructose corn syrup and cocaine. And the rats preferred the high fructose corn syrup over cocaine. And I'm like, this is astounding. Mm -hmm. And tell us about this, like how it is, our food is just so reinforcing. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen those studies before. Johan Hari talks about this in one of his books. I think it was Rat Park, essentially like all the things that rats would love and how they would gravitate to the sugar water as opposed to doing all the things that they love. And I mean, to the point where they would end up dying. I mean, those studies are really interesting. And we're getting more in terms of not just animal studies, but in human studies. And I'll talk about one in a second. But this is the one thing I would I wish that I could always convey to everybody who comes in because there's so much guilt and shame based around this. And I think for I mean, it's so multifactorial, right? Because we are much more body positive in our society. But still, there's a lot of stigma on being overweight. And so you have that part of it, then you have I feel like I'm a failure because I'm not able to do x. And it's usually this willpower, which I want to talk about willpower or I can't control my diabetes or my hypertension. And so it's just shame, 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 and just giving up. Like, I don't know what to do, especially then when you get into, well, am I supposed to be keto? There's the carnivore diet now. Am I now plant-based is a huge term. You just don't know. There's a reason why people are lost. So we have, we have a billion dollar, billion dollar industry that is based on making food that is easily consumable. We can consume a lot of it and we want to eat it over and over and over again. So I think that one thing's really interesting 
about, well, there's a lot of really interesting things about this, but this is not a secret to the, to the food industry. In fact, in 1999, all of the heads of the major corporations got together. So think like Nabisco and Oscar Mayer and all of those places. These people don't normally come together because they're all competitors, right? But they were brought together by another group, almost as like this secret cabal to get them to talk about what are we going to do to address the ever mounting evidence that our food either causes obesity or cancer, you name it, we're seeing this. And essentially, the meeting was a huge failure because the, the heads of these companies said, we're beholden to the shareholders and that's who we answer to, which that's pretty powerful, right? We don't answer to the people that we're feeding our food to. This has nothing to do with nutrition. This has to do with money. That's it. And, and I say that because I want people to know this is, again, where part of, I think, our choices have been taken away from us in a way we didn't know because we are fed these foods that are highly addictive, not for our health, but for their bottom line. Okay, so what does that mean, though? Like, how are these foods highly addictive and what does that look like? Sugar, fat, salt, those are their three money makers. This is what they need to put in every processed food, and there's reasons for that, and I'll go through that. But those together is kind of like their triple effect. Here's the thing that I think is interesting. Can you think of any food, and, and I really want you guys to answer this, can you think of any food that you would find, an unprocessed food, so you'd find in nature, that has sugar, salt, and fat in it? No, because they, they might have you know sugar, yeah, it might have natural sugars, but no fat, or it might have fat like avocado or walnuts, but no. Yeah. yeah, you're right. It doesn't doesn't come in that combination. It doesn't come in that combination. Yeah, um, exactly. Almonds are high in fat, but they're not high in sugar. Fruit is high in sugar, but not high in fat. Nature's made it that way. <laughs> We're not supposed to have that combination together. When they put those three things together, they make this magic combination in our bodies and in our brains and in our mouth. I mean, it starts in your mouth. So they call salt the flavor burst. So an example of this is Cheez-Its. Without the salt, it would stick to the roof of your mouth and you wouldn't be able to swallow it because the salt provides texture and solubility, okay? So if you were, they can't remove salt from this product. Frozen waffles, if you took salt out of that, which I don't need a lot of salt in my waffles, right? I need maple syrup on top of it, but I don't need salt in it. But if you put a frozen waffle in the toaster and it doesn't have salt in it, it essentially just falls apart. It's like straw and it looks really bad too. It doesn't preserve the color. Because again, how do we make more money? These foods have to last a long time on the shelf. Cornflakes. If we took salt out of cornflakes, which again, cornflakes, I don't need salt in my cornflakes. I definitely don't need salt in my cereal. But if they took that out, majority of people would taste a metallic flavor because most processed foods have a metallic flavor, but the salt covers it up. I mean, this sounds just like big tobacco, right? Exactly. I mean, don't we know this story that we have big money pushing an agenda that's not in the best interest of the consumer. It's in the interest of their bottom line in spite of known health effects. And here we have poor nutrition and processed food in the standard American diet. What you're saying is it's being propagated by people who have no investment in real nutrition. Exactly. And plays into food addiction because these are the foods that are marketed to us that we're buying and then we feel like we can't control what we're eating. Well, there's a reason for that. It's just like nobody ever ate an entire bag of carrots and they're like, oh my gosh, where's the whole bag of carrots? I don't can't believe I ate. Nobody on earth ever said that. 
that ever. And there are reasons for that. Carrots are full of fiber. You couldn't even get through a whole bag. It's why you can't eat baskets of strawberries together. You know, this is the part where I think talking to patients about it is when we talk about treatment, like what you can do is that this isn't all your fault. Like this, this is, you've kind of been set up a little bit. So that's just salt. So think about the fat and sugar. Sugar is added to foods until it hits a quote unquote bliss point. That's the industry term for it. And what that essentially means is they add sugar and sugar and sugar and sugar until the people that are taste testing their food say, oh, that's too much. (laughs) And then they, they back it off a little bit. And that's the bliss point. Essentially, as much sugar as you can handle before it makes the food taste terrible. And then fat, that's the mouthfeel. That's what they call it. And their formulation is what they like to hit is 50-50. So at least 50% of the calories are from fat, which, you know, I say this all the time to people when I'm doing nutrition counseling, the fat you eat is the fat you wear. Being very mindful of that. And if there's just one thing that I tell people, okay, don't eat a food that has more than three grams of fat per serving in it. And at that point, it gets really hard to be eating processed foods and you gravitate more towards unprocessed foods like beans, sweet potatoes, grains, greens, those types of things, those really healing things. You know, just the other thing I wanted to say about this is the food companies are hiring, you know, highly trained Ivy League trained scientists to quote unquote food engineer. They're literally engineers of food to make these products. And they're paid millions of dollars, again, to get people to eat more and more and more of them. All these kids, I sound so old. All these kids eating hot, what are they called? Hot Cheetos? What I kind of think about it, but like there's something to it, right? And you see kids walking around with their red fingers, you know, there's something to do with that particular product. And like you're just saying that, man, they really hit the button with the flavor burst and the mouth feel. And then of course, with that particular food, you add in uh, food coloring and then you already mentioned preservatives. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And so you have kids that just can't stop eating those. Yeah. And again, so, so this is an interesting story, the way that Lunchables were designed. The whole reason why a Lunchable was made by Oscar Mayer was because people were being, were concerned about eating bologna and they were concerned about eating red meat. So it was around that time where that was starting to become more of a trigger, like don't eat red meat, eat more chicken. So now they have this problem on their hands. How do we sell our bologna because it's falling out of favor? Because people were concerned about our health. We saw that with trans fat. That became a very big concern and companies did take it out. So we do have power. You know, our buying is power. They were worried about how we're going to sell bologna. How do we do that? Well, essentially what they decided is we've got to package this in a form where we can sell it to working women who need to feed their children and they want to feed their kids something which would appear healthy, right? Like a bologna sandwich was thought to be healthy at the time. Well, we can't package this up like that because we can't sell the bread because it will get moldy. We're trying to make our bologna into something else that's not recognizable. So we're going to use crackers. They're super um, shelf stable and we're going to use processed cheese. We can't use real cheese because again, it would get moldy, right? Crackers, highly shelf stable cheese that's not real cheese. And now we're going to put our bologna, we're going to package this together in something that looks healthier and sell it to people that need a quick, easy answer for children's lunches. And it got so precise in terms of saving money. This is how much money means to them is that the original Lunchable had a napkin in it and it was a cent and a half and that was too much money. And then they went on to add the Capri Sun and then to add a snack size candy. So essentially what you're now sending your child 
child to school with, which a mother's thinking she's sending her child to school with something healthy, right? Because these are all the things that we're supposed to eat if you were to look at like the government pyramid. Um, you know, meat, dairy, grain, that's not really a grain, but essentially it's packaged the way that that is marketed. It has more salt than kids are supposed to have in a day, or at least two thirds of their recommended daily allowance of salt and more sugar, the Capri Sun and the candy. So again, this is that I'm trying to do the best I can, but I'm just, I'm up against scientists and I'm up against a lot of money. Yeah. And I mean, food like that is often cheaper than healthier alternatives. And we don't have a lot of health literacy around nutrition. And that plays into it too. I'm sure that our a lot of our patients think they're, like you said, they're doing best by their families and they, they really, they're not, but they're being beguiled basically by the industry. Absolutely. So, okay. So that's kind of, I mean, we could go on and on and on about the food industry and, and what they do. I mean, even from how they'll track people's eye movements in the grocery store. So the caps of aisles are high real estate. And then the middle of the aisle, like right at eye level, those are the places where they spend the most money to have their products. Um, and they've gotten this from watching people shop and where their eyes gravitate towards. Okay, well, what's happening with this food in our body? So there's a lot of researchers out there that are doing some really cool work. One of them that I thought would be fun to highlight is David Ludwig. He's an MD, PhD, an endocrinologist researcher, and he's a professor at Harvard Medical School and the Harvard School of Public Health. So he co-directs the New Balance Foundation um, of Obesity Prevention. Prevention Center at Boston Children's Hospital. And his research, research is focused on how the food affects hormones, metabolism, body weight, and overall well-being. So I think that this was such an interesting study that he did. And it was small. It was only on 12 men. But I mean, this is this is really interesting and it's good insight. What happens in the brain after eating too um, much refined carbohydrates? So they took 12 men who all had BMIs that were either overweight or obese, and they were given two milkshakes. So one of the milk shakes was contained corn syrup. So something that's highly processed, fast acting carbs, something that's going to spike insulin. And the other was uncooked cornstarch. So essentially something that would be a more slow acting carbohydrate. Otherwise, the milkshakes had the same nutrients. So we're talking same micro macros, um, protein, fat, and carbohydrate identical and similar sweetness. And this was controlled by adding different amounts of artificial sweetener. So the milkshakes were given in random order and neither participants nor the study staff knew which came first. The results were published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And as they expected, blood glucose and insulin levels were higher after the fast acting milkshake for the first hour or two. But by four hours after consuming the fast acting shake, blood glucose fell to lower levels and reported hunger was greater compared to the slow acting shake. At that time, they conducted brain imaging scans using a technique, fMRI, and the scans detected in the nucleus accumbens that it lit up like a laser after the fast acting shake. So the same thing we see in substance use disorders. This effect was so strong and consistent and occurred in every one of the participants, providing strong statistical confidence in this result. You know, we know that the nucleus accumbens is considered the ground zero for reward, craving, and addiction. And again, we see this in alcohol, tobacco, cocaine, an activation of this region on weight loss and diet would essentially erode the willpower. So making sugary and starchy foods, which we've been talking about, raising, you know, your blood sugar, raising 
insulin, almost impossible to resist. So I think that this is where food addiction is tricky. So unlike substances abuse, like I said, we need food to live. However, the type of food we eat is really important. And so this study suggests that highly processed carbohydrates may hijack basic reward circuitry in the brain and not because they're inherently tasty. So not just because they were both sweet, both the milkshakes were the same sweetness, but instead because of the direct actions on metabolism. We know that hunger is hard to fight in any circumstance, but once you get like the nucleus incumbents in, it's dead. Like <laughs> that's it. Game over. Kind of bringing it back to how these foods are engineered. So one of the scientists that was that was hired by a food company, he is a psychophysicist. I actually had never heard the term psychophysicist. Have you heard that term before? I have never heard that term before. Yeah. Okay. So essentially, they quantitatively investigate the relationship between physical stimuli and the sensations and perceptions they produce. So psychophysics, I can't even say the word, is described as a scientific study of the relationship between stimulus and sensation, the analysis of perceptual processes by studying the effect on a subject's experience or behavior of systematically varying the properties of stimulus along with one or more physical dimensions. So essentially, he's studying how do I change this product food for him? And how does that affect the person? And how do I change it to be more pleasurable? And the way that this research has been used in the past is, you know, remember when Cherry Vanilla Dr. Pepper came out? Yes. Yeah. Well, that was his, that was his his birth child. Essentially, how do I make a food that people will respond to in a positive way and crave and want? Dr. Pepper during this time was having a hard time selling. They were losing out to Pepsi and to Coke. And so they hired him to come in and essentially they're called brand extensions or line extensions where they make more flavors or different variations of the product. And so that's how that was born. But it took a while because the variations he had before people would taste it and they hated it. So he had to keep changing it until there was this pleasurable outcome. And he did this too. He is known for changing the way we eat spaghetti marinara sauce or like prego sauce. And essentially it was because he altered the sugar and or the salt and most certainly the sugar content, which again, these are foods we don't need sugar in. If he added more, people liked it and they bought more. All right. Thank you, Catherine. I love those examples, especially you talked about before about not shaming them. Just trying to tell our patients that you're fat and you're lazy and this is your fault. We need to move away from that in medicine. Yeah. I mean, and I think kind of to wrap up that part of it is that, okay, well, we know food addiction exists. It may not be official diagnosis in the DSM, but it's most certainly been recognized in scientific literature. Like we said, it's, you know, back dating to the 1950s. It's there. And, you know, now we have scalability of how we can measure that too, which is great. So using that um, with patients. But again, I mean, I, I love what you said is that people aren't just fat and lazy and they thought, oh, this would be a good idea because I want to feel sick and tired and not play with my kids or participate in my life. Of course, nobody ever said that. And, you know, comparing to the smoking industry, this is exactly the same, right? Doctors used to prescribe cigarettes. And, you know, when cigarettes were falling out of favor, they started making reinventions of them. So like the filtered cigarette, those was specifically marketed to um, females. Having the filter was going to make it better for your health. I mean, it was everything that they could do to keep that market share. And now now vape. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And now we, I mean, so who knows, what what are they going to come up with next? Something, most certainly. Sparkling seltzers. 
<laughs> yeah. This is my soapbox sparkling <laughs> seltzers with alcohol. And there's already so much shame in this, like we talked about. So, okay, so you have the billion dollar food industry. You also have a nation where our whole culture is centered around food. You have that going against you. Then we have, we live busy lives, right? And we live in this society now where we wake up, we sit in a car to drive to our office. Most jobs are pretty inactive where you're sitting at a computer. You drive in your car back, so more sitting. And then, you know, you eat dinner, you're exhausted and you go to bed. You're trying to get quick, easy food to live in this quick paced, you know, this society that we live in. I just don't even know what to eat anymore with all of the food or all the diets that are out there. I just overwhelming and frustrating. Being able to take some of this knowledge into clinic and say, what's your relationship with food? How do you feel like your um, health has been impacted with this to start that conversation? And then I know that there's not a lot of time in clinic, but maybe giving resources to dietitians and, and we'll talk about treatment or having a handout or, or building something into your clinic to be able to improve nutrition education, because that's where I think we're lacking so much. We just don't know what to do. Okay. Well, most people probably know I shouldn't drink Coke all day, but I'm not really sure how to feed my family or myself. So, okay. Medications. We'll talk about medications, but I'd also like to talk about some of the mind body therapies that I think are really impactful. And I think also instead of just treating the symptoms or getting some symptom relief, actually changing the behavior and reversing the way that your brain works. That's the most impact that you can make for somebody long-term. Let's talk about some of the medications we have and why we use them. So we have SSRIs. We most see that effective in binge eating disorder. And the reason why is because they get the highest rate of symptom reduction in our placebo-controlled trials. Tricyclic antidepressants, think amipramine, um, and dual serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, so like duloxetine, can also be helpful. Bupropion uh, may also be useful in food addiction because of its favorable effects in obese people with binge eating disorder. So a lot of these medications helping it specifically in the binge process of this. And then you see our anticonvulsants like topiramate. And essentially, again, a lot of this has been in binge eating um, disorder, and that helps by targeting consequences of food addiction and also medications like opioid antagonists, acomprosate may help target the reward system involved in the response to hyperpalatable stimuli. A combination of naltrexone and bupropion um, has been proven more effective when combined with lifestyle intervention and calorie reduction for patients with obesity than just using um, the individual medications alone. That's such that's so interesting and that's so good to get that menu of options for our patients, you know, just to have something to offer them. I've never thought of using a campersate for this, but you know, it makes sense because of the activity on glutamate and NMDA, which mm-hmm. is why topiramate is so helpful. But I have to say I use topiramate a lot in folks who, you know, have food addiction and it seems to be really effective, like to the point where people have drastic response. Yeah. But I have a question. I didn't realize, well, I mean, I guess it makes sense that if SSRIs and SNRIs are effective, that TCAs would be as well. But I always think that TCAs are more likely to cause weight gain, which might be kind of triggering to people in, the, in terms of body image stuff. So do you think that's true or have you used TCAs for this? Yeah. So I don't use TCAs just because they're just such a dirty medication and you see so many side effects. I just include it in here because it's in the research. But I think that that would most certainly be my last line of what I would choose. I would probably go something 
something else, especially, you know, like you were talking about topiramate that has been really helpful and can treat a few other things too, or like an SSRI or an SNRI, especially if you see a lot in mood. So you kind of get a two, four there, which you, you could get with a tricyclic, but it usually just has so many side effects that I try and steer away from it, but it's in the literature. Great. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Based on the high degree of overlap between binge eating disorder and food addiction, the main psychotherapeutic interventions are recommended or cognitive behavioral therapy. So this is the anti-binging effects you get main, sorry, this is, you see anti-binging effects maintained with a lot of follow-up. Interpersonal therapy, so seeing decreased binge eating behavior um, and depressive comorbidity. So I think that that's therapy, and this is one of the reasons why I kind of wanted to dig into this, is that not only is it going to help with um, food addiction, but going to a therapist is going to help with likely underlying mood disorders that are there, or comorbid mood disorders that they also have. Like we were talking about before, high rates of anxiety, high rates of depression. And that's kind of interesting too, right? Because what's affecting what is the chicken and the egg? Like somebody's mood disorder feeling low and they feed that or feeding that, did that lead to mood disorder? And it's probably different for everybody, but essentially kind of going both ways there. That is such a good point though, is really getting to what is the root problem and treating that. Yeah, absolutely. And then dialectical behavioral therapy, uh, decreased binge eating behavior and associated eating disorder, psychopathology. And then there's techniques like Overeaters Anonymous or Weight Watchers, really emphasizing group dynamic. And then, of course, the spiritual components of Overeaters Anonymous. I do think there's a lot of power in programs like Weight Watchers. Weight Watchers is an easy example because most people know what, but there are many groups that do this, like community groups will do this in their churches, something similar to that. I even read about a program and they are so successful, but it is very strict. Once you enter the group, if you leave, then that's it because they build such a strong community and support system. But the people that commit to the program and stay in it, they have extremely high rates of success in terms of weight loss and maintaining that weight loss, improving their um, relationship with food. And, you know, this is also in the literature. I don't think that we should really need to get into this, but they are using TMS to treat food addiction, which I think is pretty interesting that that, you know, out there too. That's really interesting. I mean, it makes sense that there's there's a lot of, there's a bit of, OCD component to food addiction, it seems like, and just neurohormonal dysregulation, that things like TMS would be affected. But it's good, isn't it? I mean, isn't it great that they're coming up with more treatments so that people don't just kind of live in a shame cycle and kind of commit themselves to a life of worsening health, mental health, physical health? Yeah, absolutely. Which again, you know, we're not hopeless against this. I mean, education on foods to eat, treatments out there, and then, okay, you know, why is this happening? Why is is happening in your brain. And I think what's so interesting is essentially, you know, when we're talking about doing mind-body therapies or psychotherapy, teaching people that you have this reward-based learning system that's built into your brain, into your caveman brain, um, that lizard brain. And essentially that was originally placed there so that you wouldn't die because what happened is that caveman saw food, caveman ate food, caveman got dopamine to lay down this track in my brain saying, 
That was a good thing. Make sure you do that again and remember where the food was. That was the whole keep person alive (laughs) during that time. We still have that function in our brain, except for we don't need it anymore because we all have fridges in our house that are full of food that we can access 24-7. We have a McDonald's, a Pizza Hut, a Wendy's, I mean, you name it, on every block. Plus, okay, talk about 7-Eleven gas station food. And then if we didn't need to up the ante, so again, talking about how we just are like up against this wall, we have Uber Eats, Postmates. I mean, all I need is my phone. I don't even need to get up from my bed. I can order whatever food I want and it will be delivered to my door. That's the still same thing that's happening in my brain. So something that went from protecting me is now literally killing us as a nation. I I think that that's pretty dramatic, right? Okay, so talking about trigger um, behavior reward. So essentially, you know, what this looks like dialed down is you see something, you eat something, and then you get some sort of reward or escape from X. So I'm sad, I'm lonely, I'm bored, I'm stressed, you name it. I'm I'm going to fix that with, we're talking about here, food. We see that with gambling, with sex, with substances, but here we're talking about food addiction. Driving this escape. Okay, willpower. So this is, it always comes down to, I just don't have enough willpower for that. I could, if I was strong enough, I can do it. Every Monday, I'm going to start a new diet or I, this this time it's going to work and time after time it doesn't. And that's because our prefrontal cortex is involved in willpower, but it's the weakest. It's the first to go offline when we're stressed, when we're angry, when we're tired, which is the same time we find ourselves going to look for food, right? It's because we're trying to self-medicate that during that time. So now the tool we're trying to use is willpower. It's offline because of the stress, the anger, what the loneliness, whatever. So that's how come I'm going to start this. You get into day one. By that night, you're in the fridge. Okay, well, but what can we do? This is like all bad news bears. I don't want to be bad news bears about everything. Okay, well, the first step is just awareness to that. It's not because I don't have willpower. It's because my body is trying to keep me alive. Just the society around me has built up such to be protective that I don't need that anymore. So I need to understand how my mind works and I need to be able to change that reward-based learning, which we can do. And this is why I think this is so powerful in terms of, well, do we use medications? What do we do? You know, maybe using medications while somebody is going through therapy to do that would be a good answer for that because you get some symptom decrease during that time to be able to engage in the therapy. But we can change this. We can reverse that, which I think is so, it feels very powerful to the patient that I can have some control back when I've just told you all of the reasons why you have no control in your life and about what you feed yourself. Being very aware. First, identify triggers. So what is my trigger? And boredom is, I have a boredom. I'm bored. I go upstairs and all of a sudden I'm looking in the cupboard. Or if I don't want to do a task, I will say those are my biggest triggers to just munch away. Okay. So that's my trigger. And the next thing that I would recommend people to do is not necessarily not do that, is to do it. And how does it make you feel? The difference between this is I'm not just going to the cupboard to eat something. I'm going to go to the cupboard. I'm going to eat it. And I'm 
going to notice how I feel because I'm always doing that in between my meals when I've already ate. I'm not missing any meals, trust me. Usually I feel full or it makes my stomach gassy or upset or I'm not hungry for my next meal. Usually when I eat mindlessly, there's always a negative consequence for that. But I'm not tapped into that because I'm more tapped into I'm avoiding this task or I'm avoiding being sad or lonely or angry or whatever that is. So I always recommend people, how does it make you feel when you overeat? And take it down to like, what does it taste like when you eat the food? Most people will say the food didn't even taste that good because they weren't actually hungry. Or food usually will taste good for the first, second, third bite, but the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, tenth serving, it doesn't taste as good. But we just keep eating. And whether that's because we end up, we're just so engaged in that behavior, or we feel guilt and shame, I might as well just finish this. I'm going to eat all of this because then tomorrow I'm going to start my diet again. Once you start to associate negative behavior or negative feelings with that behavior, that's where you start laying down new tracks. So um, we see people being able to actually change their behavior. Um, They do this research in smoking. And I think that this has kind of been really cool to see. So this work that I'm talking about is um, by Dr. Judd Brewer. He's fantastic. I think he's working at Brown right now, has a great lab. And if people want to access his resources, I know that he has an app for food and for smoking cessation and anxiety. But essentially, this is a lot of the work that he does. And he talks about having somebody smoke. So they come to this smoking cessation class and their first assignment is to go home and smoke. And everybody is like, why am I going to smoke? I'm supposed to be stop smoking. And he said, no, I want you to go home and mindfully smoke. And when people come back to the next class, they say, hey, Dr. Brewer, I'm down to half a pack a day. And he asks, well, why? Because when I was paying attention to what was happening physically in my body, my fingers smell really bad and I can't taste my food after I smoke, or I was having to drink a lot of coffee to be able to get this bitter taste out, or I didn't feel very good after I did it. All of these negative consequences, and that's how you change the behavior. That's so interesting. So mindfulness, basically, like really learning how to eat mindfully. And I think there's a lot of, well, that's a great resource, Dr. Brewer's resource, and there's lots of other resources out there on mindfulness, mindful eating. Absolutely. Um, So, you know, the orbitofrontal cortex stores and updates our reward value. So again, what we were talking about, and it's always looking for the bigger and better thing. It wants the shinier star. So if you can show your brain a shinier star, it's going to go for that. And you can do that through mindfulness. So again, paying attention to to when you overeat. The dopaminergic drive is associated with feelings of restlessness and agitation. We're miserable until we do that behavior. So whether that's smoking, overeating, substance use, it's not a calming effect. And then you go into that same spiral of guilt and shame And then we're miserable until we do it again. And it just continues this cycle. Again, so similar to substance of abuse. I mean, parts of it you could lay over and it would be the exact same. So really trying to tap into that feeling, is there something better out there? And we know that there is, right? So using mindfulness to turn to these sensations, it will end up losing its power. Again, the orbital frontal cortex, it wants the brighter stars, helping people find what that brighter star is. And just to give examples, like if you were to go out and walk, that's something that I've done in my personal life is that when I feel like I'm gravitating to the fridge one too many times, I just go outside and go for a 10 minute walk. I mean, not only 
only do you get, you get a reward, right? We get dopamine in our brains from when we exercise, we move our bodies. So I'm getting a reward from that. I'm getting outside of the house away from me walking back to the fridge. And now that's a behavior I'm going to do repeatedly instead of going to the fridge. The other thing that I would say, so mindfulness is a great tool. Medications can be a great tool. Using therapy is a great tool. This research is, you know, pretty new and upcoming, I think across the board in the medical world, but is, is very, very interesting is the microbiome and how our gut affects our brain. That could be an entire podcast. So I will try not to, to really drown on about that. And it's really new, but we are seeing that people that have, we're seeing that people that have dysbiosis in their gut have more, they're more prone to food addictions. And I think this is really interesting because they're seeing this even in women that are pregnant and children. So women um, that have had antibiotics, um, depending on their gestational environment, so what was mom eating um, when she was pregnant, we're noticing the changes in the microbiome of the babies and that they're more prone to food addiction. That was some of the latest research that I was reading, which I think is fascinating. The microbiome is, that is like a new world we're discovering. But we most certainly know that people that don't have a lot of short chain fatty acids in their gut have more dysbiosis and that they're seeing that there's alterations in terms of mood and mental health. And there's some connection to that, to food addiction. That's so fascinating. I mean, and we're seeing those studies regarding the microbiome and alcohol use disorder and disordered microbiome in patients with well-developed substance use disorder. So like you said, it's a whole new world. It literally is a whole other world. That's absolutely fascinating. And the way, the one sentence way we change and make a healthier microbiome is to eat fiber. Exactly. To eat eat your vegetables basically in a wide variety of them. Yeah. It's amazing. This is so interesting. I mean, the whole, because food is so pervasive, like you said, it's everywhere. It's the way we interact with the world it becomes so complicated. And then you add in all these different factors, it becomes this really interesting, complex issue. But I love how you've taken us through all these treatment options. So it's very solution focused. I think this has been really, I've been taking notes. I'm just like, this is amazing. Awareness, change, reward-based learning, mindfulness, and a different behavior. I love it. And also the medications are so helpful. And then obviously the different kinds of treatment like CBT and interpersonal. This has been really educational, really fantastic. Oh, good, good. Honestly, there are treatments out there, but we don't know what we don't know. So awareness first, how is food affecting us? I think having a lot of grace with ourselves and and with our patients that listen, this is this is a whole new way of thinking, right? We're not going to give our money to people to be billionaires to make us sick anymore. We're going to find different ways to educate ourselves about food and how it feels in our body and literally teach us to desire different foods and different activities when we're not hungry as opposed to eating. There are so many ways that we can do that. And we have medications to kind of calm down those fires while you're trying to work on the mind-body therapies. Yes. I mean, we couldn't say yes more. And also for those of us who are interested in addiction medicine and who treat and take care of patients with substance use disorder or process disorders, I think this is particularly pertinent because we have a vulnerable group of folks whose brains have already damaged. I don't mean to say that in any kind of a condescending way, but by substance use. And even in recovery, they can be more vulnerable, other maladaptive reward pathways. And we've seen that we talked about this in another podcast, but we've seen that with the high
high incidence of binge eating disorder with alcohol use disorder and vice versa, and how one comes into play with bypass surgery, et cetera. And how many of us have treated a patient for opioid use disorder and we see them again even a year later and they've gained 50 or 60 pounds. That happens really frequently. And is it a product of this brain reward system or is it a product of the medications we put them on or the fact that we don't do any education around nutrition and now they're using their innate reward system satisfaction, you know, by food. Anyway, it's a whole thing. So super fascinating. Yeah, that's, I mean, exactly. Because what happens when people stop using substances, sugar usually ends up coming in. So if you go to a meeting, there are donuts there, it becomes food. So we see that that works, right? We've seen that that reward-based learning system work, but we just have to find different ways to utilize it that, that don't have a negative impact on health. That's that's the only thing. It's just the negative impact on health. Thank you so much. And our take-home message is eat your vegetables. Right? <laughs> and grains and sweet potatoes. <laughs> And legumes. And legumes and nuts and seeds. There are lots of good foods out there. (laughs) And fruits. Yes. Thank you. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on this show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.